Romans chapter 16 and biting the bullet here this morning and tackling the issue of women in ministry. <laughs> I've, I've had this kicking around for a long, long, long time and it seemed that now was the right time. Just trying to rearrange everything up here. Bear with me. Yeah, women in ministry. Romans 16 is one of those chapters that you probably don't read that much because you get there and you say, ah, this is just Paul saying, what about you to everybody in the churches in Rome? But actually it is, there's a few very important uh, little points to make from Romans 16 and a few other places uh, in the New Testament this morning. So I've called this belittled women. Do you like that? Did well, didn't it? I thought it was good. Okay, you can all go home now. <laughs> um, let's read Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 7. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. The church needs to know what we believe on some big matters. And I had toyed with the idea over oh, a long time now about doing some occasional Sunday night lectures on some big topics. Uh, but I think people still, when they get home on a Sunday, don't really want to go out again. And COVID has caused us to get, get comfortable. The armchair just feels better than it ever did. Uh, and I think if we were to do this on a Sunday night, we might not get the most out of it. So I decided I would do some on a Sunday morning. And we're going to look at this topic for a couple of weeks. And then maybe a few months down the line, we'll, we'll pick another one and, and pitch our tent in it as well. But this is so important. Society has a huge problem globally and locally in terms of how women are viewed and treated. And the church is definitely not immune to those problems. From my limited reading on church leader websites and the like, it would appear that every mega church that has been rocked in recent years, and there have been a lot of them, Willow Creek, Mars Hill, Hillsong, New York City in particular, and, and a lot of those churches, in fact, I would say in all of them that I'm aware of, there's something that they've had in common. Women have either been silenced or they have been mistreated and abused by leadership, by powerful men. Frequently men who are narcissistic, controlling, and who demand loyalty and silence anyone who questions them. Every one of those sagas that has unfurled in recent years, at the forefront and at the heart of it, there has been the mistreatment of women. And if the church does not set an example in how to treat women... What hope is there for society to change? And if the church teaches that women are to be silent and silenced, 
then what hope is there for women to speak up in society, especially when they are being mistreated? And how many spiritually gifted women sit or stand in churches every Sunday morning in silence because ignorant, biblically illiterate men have told them that they cannot speak? And right now, you might be thinking of some passages in Paul. We'll get there <laughs> next week. So this, this is for the women who need to be encouraged and affirmed in their ministries. The women who know they are gifted, who know they are called, and who feel the holy discontent of the Holy Spirit within them, but they are fearful if they step out in faith and use the gifts that they have been given by the Spirit to answer the call of God on their lives, that they are being unbiblical by doing so. But this is also for the men who have a responsibility to encourage women in their ministries and create space for those ministries to flourish. This is not just about preaching and teaching, but in the context of preaching and teaching, Scott McKnight urges that we simply do not need to share our platforms with women. We need to get off the platform and sit and listen to what they have to say. This is for the girls who need clarity in a confusing world. The girls who, again, know they are called and know they are gifted and passionately want to serve Jesus, but who never see anyone but men ministering in the church, who have grown up watching their mothers being silenced in the church and are now resigning themselves to be silent themselves. There's a lot of cultural baggage here that you might need to, to lay down. This is for the girls who are tempted now to disobey Jesus by digging a hole and burying their talents in the ground because men have convinced them that it would be unbiblical to use those talents to serve Jesus and to build up the church. This is for the boys who need to develop a right view of women in general and women in the church in particular before culture and bad teaching develops arrogance and mistreatment of women. I'm concerned at the, the amount of teenage boys in our churches, in our youth groups, who are already developing harsh, misogynistic views against women in the church. But they are only mimicking what they have seen the previous generation of men doing. They need to see a better example. And who are our young men and our boys learning their attitudes from? Because if the church does not set an example to our boys in how to treat women, they might be influenced by the examples that they see online, such as Donald Trump, Harvey Weinstein, or Andrew Tate. They might even look to wrong places in the church, to those narcissistic controlling leaders who should have no place on your bookshelves anymore because of the way they have treated women? Or will they learn from Jesus and from Paul and from godly men who have rigorously dug into the scriptures and set them a godly example? So please don't be thinking this is one for the ladies, <laughs> you men and you boys. Don't be tuning out and thinking, ah, it's, it's nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with you. And the plan for this little mini-series, which might be two weeks, it'll definitely be two, it might be three, 
It'll hopefully not be 15 like that one last year. The plan is to look at some belittled women in the New Testament, many of whom are unknown to most people in the church today. And I'm not going to look at all of these, but here's a few for you. Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, Mary Magdalene, Mary the sister of Lazarus, and Martha, Tabitha, Lydia, Phoebe, Priscilla, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Julia, Chloe, Yodia, Syntyche, Nympha, Lois, Eunice, Claudia, Apphia, Philip's four daughters. There's lots of them. (laughs) We know all about the men in the New Testament and we tend to not pay a lot of attention sometimes to these women. And don't think that because something is only mentioned once or because someone is only mentioned once, that means it's not important. Paul only mentioned the Lord's Supper once in all of his letters. And we do still tend to think that that is important. So this week I'm going to look at a few of those names, but not all of them, in case you're fearful. Uh, And then next week I am planning to look at some really difficult texts in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. And I mean really difficult, okay? I'm regretting it now already. And the reason I put this in was the thought, if I say it, I have to do it. Um, Could be a few late nights this week, but... These are texts that we need to wrestle with uh, and see if we can understand what's going on in them. I spent a lot of Christmas with Luke, the writer of the gospel. Most mornings when Samuel came into the kitchen and I was sitting at the table at the laptop, he would say, what are you at? What are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing Luke. And at night when people were going to bed, what are you doing, Dad? I'm doing Luke. It just seemed to be the answer all the time. Uh, I, I went through all of Luke over the Christmas holidays with a, with a lecture series and loved it. And one of the things, because we're going back to Luke in a few weeks, one of the things that, that I, I, I saw going through it at high speed was the focus on women in Luke's gospel. In, in the first chapter, Zechariah is there and, and Joseph is there, but the focus is on Elizabeth and Mary. And whenever you get to chapter 2 and, and we see Jesus being presented in the temple and this old man, Simeon, comes along and, and is blessed as he holds the Messiah, immediately afterwards Luke tells us about a woman called Anna. In chapter 7, a centurion, obviously a man, has his servant healed by Jesus. And immediately afterwards, a widow, a woman, has her son raised from the dead. In Luke 7, Jesus goes to the house of a religious man, but it is a woman who recognizes who he is and pours her perfume on his feet. And Luke does this again and again and again, where he puts in these little stories and he pairs them together. Story about a man, story about a woman. Because he wants to emphasize that the gospel is for everyone. One of the things that Paul teaches us about church leadership is something that we find in Ephesians chapter 4. Different ministries and, and roles within the church. Paul's framework is 4, 11 and 12 in Ephesians. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So we've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, oh, I should say pastors there, that last one, forgive me, and teachers. But we usually change the fourth one from pastors to shepherds, and then we can use this funky wee thing called apest to talk about these roles in the church. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, 
teacher. And what I want to do this morning is have a look at these roles and see, are there women in the New Testament who do these things? Because we can all think of men who do these things, both in the New Testament and probably in, in contemporary life. But are there women doing these things? Let's take the first one, apostle. This, you'll not believe this. If you've heard this before, okay. But if you haven't heard this before, you're not going to believe this, okay? Romans 16, verse 7 that I read earlier. Greet Andronicus and Junia, man and wife. Andronicus and Junia. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Now, way back in the early centuries, just after the, you know, the church got established, there was a guy called John Chrysostom. And writing on this passage, he said about Junia, this lady up at the top, that's Junia. To be an apostle is something great, but to be outstanding among the apostles, just think what a wonderful song of praise that is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been, that she was even deemed worthy of the title apostle. But even here, Paul does not stop, but adds another song of praise besides and says, who were also in Christ before me. Paul speaks of this lady, Junia, in the highest possible regard. And he names her as an apostle. But over the period of church history, after about 1,000 or 1,200 years, a conspiracy began to gather pace against Junia. Lots of translators got caught up in it. Even Martin Luther, who, following the lead of a French translator, then wrote his German translation, and he put a masculine article in the name which indicated that Junia was a man. Before him, a translator for the Roman Catholic Church changed the text so that it read, Andronicus and Junia were honorable men. As recently as 1927, the Greek New Testament that was published in that year put Junia as a footnote at the bottom of the page and gave us a new name, Junius. Now, when you put an S at the end of a name in Greek that ends in A, you are changing a feminine to a masculine. We would do that with, with names as well. So, so we take Daniel and we put another L and an E at the end of it. We've got Danielle and Paul can become Pauline and Michael can become Michaela and so on. If you take Junia, a feminine, and you put an S on the end of it, you've got a masculine name. And all of a sudden, Junia is down at the bottom of the page as a footnote, this female apostle. And we've created this new person called Junius. So much so that in my NIV, which is the 1984 NIV, that's what it says in Romans 16, 7. Greet Andronicus and Junius. In fact, in a Greek New Testament published in the late 70s, the footnote was then removed. And Junia was dead. Scott McKnight says, Let me be clear once more. The editors of the Greek New Testaments killed Junia. They killed her by silencing her into non-existence. And bizarrely, there is no example in history, in the Bible 
or in any Greek literature of any man ever having the name Junius. It doesn't exist. They took a female name, they made it masculine by putting an S on the end of it, and they made up a name that is not recorded anywhere in history. Thankfully, recent scholarship has given Junia back her rightful place in Romans 16 and acknowledged that she is female. And the most recent version of the NIV, and it'd be interesting if you have your Bibles to peep at Romans 16, 7 and see what you've got. If you've got Junius, it's wrong. If you've got Junia, it's right. But opponents of the verse and opponents of the idea that a woman could be an apostle now say the verse should be translated that they were highly esteemed by the apostles rather than among them. And if you ever needed any evidence of the hostility among some in the church against women in ministry, you have it right here. Exhibit A, an extreme attempt by translators to airbrush a woman out of the Bible completely instead of airbrushing their theology to accept what the scriptures clearly say. So we have a female apostle. What is an apostle? In the, in the New Testament, apostle would maybe say capital A apostle, the, the 12, and Paul, people who could write scripture. In the church, lowercase a apostle, anyone who's sent anyone who's a missionary, anyone who's a church planter, a pioneer, someone who breaks new ground, someone who starts a new social enterprise for the kingdom, anything like that is apostolic. And Junia was an apostle. What about prophet? Prophet. Um, We already mentioned Anna in Luke chapter 2, who is a prophet, described by Luke as a prophet. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. But then there was Philip, who had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Imagine that dinner table at night. Philip and these four daughters. The banter, the crack, the prophetic chat that would take place. Philip was an absolute nutter in the spirit. He's the guy that got transported from one, in Acts chapter 8, transported from one location to another. That happened. He was just charismatic to the nth degree. And he has these four daughters. And I would suggest strongly they were not biological daughters. Not all of them. To have four daughters in the ancient world, very, very unlikely. Because little girls were not valued as highly as little boys. And frequently in, in that culture, if a girl, a baby girl was born and the family didn't want a baby girl, they just left her. They did a thing called exposure where they just left her out to die. But the Christians went around and gathered them up. And Philip, these four girls, I would be almost certain at least a couple of them were adopted that Philip found and brought into his home. And God blessed that and they became <coughs> prophets Women also prophesy in in 1 Corinthians 11, which is a passage that we might touch on lately next week. But Paul puts prophecy in his list at the end of 1 Corinthians, or at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. He has a list of ministries again, and he says, God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. Paul puts prophets ahead of teachers in level of importance as their role in the church 
And he does it again in Ephesians 2.20. He says, The church, the household of God, is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. And women could prophesy in the New Testament. Philip's daughters, Anna, the women in Corinth, women were prophesying. What about shepherds? You know, in this, this list, apostles and prophets and shepherds are those who take care of the local flock. And we read of churches gathering in the homes of several women in the New Testament. Lydia in Acts, Chloe in 1 Corinthians, and Nympha in Colossians 4, in another one of those lists of names that we tend to ignore. And Nympha, it says in Colossians 4, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, translators also change Nympha's name into a masculine as well by sticking an S on the end of it. But it says her house. It's definitely feminine. If a church gathered in your home, you were part of the leadership, if not the sole leader of that flock. And you had a primary role, if not the main role, in shepherding that flock. So for these three women to have churches meeting in their houses, probably reasonably wealthy women with large enough houses for people to gather in, they were shepherds and they were leaders of the flock that they were over. Women can shepherd the church. What about a teacher? This is a good one. Phoebe. Read it at the start, Romans 16. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now let's see what Paul says about her. He says that she was a deacon and a benefactor. That's a pretty good translation. It's not quite brilliant from, from what I've looked at in the past week in, uh, in commentaries and that, but it's not bad. The two words in Greek, sorry to give you Greek, but, but this, this is useful. The two words that are used there for deacon and benefactor are diakonos and postatis. And they are usually translated in the older translations as servant and helper. Now, ladies, I don't know about you, but the words servant and helper don't really conjure up inspiring images. Okay. It sounds like we're just saying, you know, she can make tea and she can clean the church and she can, you know, have a prayer ministry. It just seems to be pushing it down. Servant and helper. So what do, what do these words actually mean then? This diakonos, first of all. This word that Paul uses of Phoebe, he also uses of himself at least six times in his letters. And what it means is what we would call a minister, a servant leader, a deacon in the church. Not, not some minor role he, he tells the people at Rome that Phoebe functions in exactly the same role as Paul himself functions. He calls himself a diakonos, a deacon, a minister, a servant leader in the church, and he uses the same term for Phoebe. And then there's this other word, prostatus, which is only in the Bible once in the feminine form. It is described as being a woman set over others. A female guardian, protectress, patroness, that means she provided for people, 
caring for the affairs of others and aiding them with her resources. I don't think helper quite gets that. And I think, again, translators have been up to their their mischief sometimes historically of trying to push the women down instead of allowing them to have the role that Paul gives them. Much better word would be leader. And when the masculine version of prostatus is used in the Greek New Testament, it always connotes leadership and authority. So women can lead in the church, according to Paul. Phoebe was a minister and a leader. But not only that, and we, you just where do you see how highly Paul thought of Phoebe? When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, right, considered by many as the greatest theological document ever written, um, whenever preachers who preach through series on books and things, whenever they do Romans, they seem to see that as the high point. I've reached the pinnacle of preaching now. I've done Romans. When Paul wrote this amazing letter, who does he give it to, to take it to Rome? He gives it to Phoebe. When he says there at the start of chapter 16, and you'll even see how the paragraphs are laid out in the page of your Bible, Phoebe's not just part of the list of other names. He starts off by saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's carrying the letter. A servant or a deacon of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been the benefactor of many, including me. Again, he puts himself in there. Uh, Just like he said about Junia, that she was an outstanding apostle who was in Christ before him. He uses himself as as a sort of benchmark to really big her up. He does the same thing about Phoebe. He doesn't just say Phoebe has been the benefactor of lots of people. He says she's helped me. The great apostle, she's helped me. I wouldn't be able to do the things I do if Phoebe hadn't helped me and been a benefactor to me. She was so trusted by Paul that she carried this letter and she was not just a courier. She wasn't just a delivery girl who would go up to the church and hand over the letter when she got there. Lucy Pepiat, who has done a huge amount of research on these difficult passages and on women in ministry, and I commend her to you if you want to read more into this. She says about Phoebe, Phoebe would have performed the letter. Not just given it to somebody else and not just read it. She actually uses the word performed. Phoebe would have performed the letter for the hearers with the correct tone and emphases as if from Paul himself. In other words, she would have read the letter knowledgeably and had the task of explaining it to the gathered churches. This would have required a considerable level of knowledge of what was in Paul's mind when he wrote it and what he meant by it. And Beverly Roberts Gaventa, who has written a commentary in Romans and done a lot of work on women in ministry as well, says that if Phoebe is the carrier of the letter, she was almost certainly engaged in discussing its content in advance with Paul. She may even have had a hand in shaping the content of the letter. And no rigorous message is complete without a weak quote from Tom. Tom Wright says, The first ever exposition of the letter to the Romans 
was probably done by a Christian businesswoman from eastern Corinth, Phoebe. So for all those writers and preachers and, and, and big name sort of mainly North American Bible teachers who, who we can go on and listen to and they, and they do a massive exposition on Romans before all of them, Phoebe was the first person to do that. Women can be teachers in the church. I left out evangelist because I want to finish here. Is this helpful? Yes. Yeah, thanks Nigel. Evangelist. Many people will gleefully point out that Jesus' 12 chosen disciples were all male. And they will then say, well, obviously Jesus does not support women in ministry. Otherwise, why would he have picked 12 men? Come on, if he he had 12 slots, he could have put a woman in at least one of them in order to make a point. But that shows the utter ignorance of whoever is making that argument. Any light reading of the first few chapters of the Gospels makes it clear that what Jesus is doing is reenacting the story of Israel, and particularly the story of Israel around the time of the Exodus. And his choosing of 12 men was very intentional and had nothing to do with his attitude to women. It was to reconstitute the 12 tribes of Israel around himself. The 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God, were based around the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel. And in Numbers, you read about how the tabernacle, which was the presence of God, was pitched. And then these 12 tribes were pitched around it. All of God's people focused on the presence of God in the tabernacle. Now Jesus has come and said in John 1, that, or John said in John 1, 14, that, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He is now the tabernacle and the location of the presence of God. And the 12 around him now focus on him. So Jesus puts 12 men around him to make a point that seems to me screamingly obvious. And yet you'll get these arrogant men who will come and say, ha ha, Jesus chose 12 men and therefore he doesn't like women. No, idiot. Just think about what Jesus is doing. He is showing the people of God are now formed around him. And those people who make that argument seem to forget that every one of those 12 men were nowhere to be seen when Jesus was in the tomb. They're gone. John stuck it out for a right while at the foot of the cross and Jesus asked John to look after his mother in his absence. But they all abandoned and fled. Peter followed from a distance. All of them gone. And it was a woman who stuck around. And it was a woman who went to the tomb early on the first day of the week, according to John 20, verse 1. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene. If I'm allowed to have a favourite, am I allowed to have a favourite woman in the Bible? (laughs) Is it okay? Oh, she's awesome. (laughs) Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. I love this. I just love this. 
And again, those, those arrogant people who will make all sorts of arguments, they can't argue with this. Who is going to be the one who will carry the message of the resurrection to the 12 apostles? You see, right now the apostles have, have vanished and we need an apostle to the apostles. <laughs> we need someone who's going to be sent to them because the sent ones have disappeared. Who's going to be the apostle to the apostles? Who will be the prophet who will carry a message from God himself, a message from Jesus to his people? Who's going to fulfill that role of prophet? Who's going to be the evangelist to the evangelists who are all hiding? Who's going to be the one that is going to bring that message of the resurrection of Jesus and share it? Who will be the shepherd who will go to the fearful flock of 12 or 11 as it now is? Who will be the shepherd who will go and reassure them with the hope of the resurrection? Who will be the teacher who will explain to them that they are now referred to not as disciples but as brothers and that they now don't just watch Jesus referring to God as Father but they are now allowed to do it themselves? Who's going to teach them that? It's Mary. Jesus is raised from the dead and the first person to see him is Mary Magdalene. He does not come out of the tomb on Easter Sunday morning and look around the garden and see Mary and think, oh no, and go back in and hide until a man came. But that's the way some people would like to have it. He came out of the tomb and Mary was in the garden coming to the tomb to anoint his body and he came out and he, and he spoke to her. And he didn't say, Mary, you wouldn't just run and get Peter for me, will you? I have something really important to show him. He didn't do that. He didn't care about that. In fact, he's so intentional about empowering her. He says, Mary, go and, go, go and tell them. Go to my brothers and tell them, I'm giving you a message. I'm sending you as an apostle. You're hearing God as a prophet. You're bringing a message as an evangelist of resurrection. And Mary Magdalene goes to them and says, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. You couldn't make this up. You'd never dare make it up. In fact, this is one of the most, if you ask a, a theologian or a Bible scholar, what is one of the most certain proofs that the resurrection is true, they will turn and say to you the fact that a woman saw it first because no one would have made that up. If, if the disciples were sitting after Jesus' crucifixion and it was all over and they wanted to concoct a story that Jesus rose from the dead and they sat down with a pen and paper and started to concoct their story, they would never ever have made it up that a woman would be the first person to see him because her testimony would not have been valid in first century culture no one would have listened to her and this is not any old woman mary magdalene this a prophet or, or apostle prophet evangelist shepherd and teacher she was a social outcast a prostitute from whom demons had to be cast out you see the transformation that can happen in a life touched by the risen Lord. I'm really intrigued. I haven't got, got back up to speed with where the chosen is at the minute, but I think in the very first episode, the very first episode was all about Mary, wasn't it? Mary Magdalene? Yeah? And I, I just, I'm 
desperate to see how they, how they do resurrection morning. I don't know what season it'll be or when it'll happen, but my goodness, it's class. If Mary Magdalene was raised from the dead, and with this thought I finish, if she was raised from the dead as a sort of advance of the final resurrection, and if she came to me and said, David, take me around the churches in this land. I am Mary Magdalene. I am the one who saw Jesus first when he rose from the dead. I am the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher who was called and empowered by him to to bring this message to his beleaguered disciples. And she said to me, I want to go and speak in lots of churches in Northern Ireland and tell them about my Jesus and tell them about my story and my life. And she said, come on, let's hop in the focus and let's go for a spin and we'll do a tour of Northern Irish churches and I will tell them my story. I wonder how many places would let her in the pulpit. The madness of it. And I'm so tempted to name names and I'm not going to do it because I respect people too much. But I'm so tempted. Prominent, famous preachers and teachers whose books fill the shelves of bookshops and Christian studies. And they wouldn't let Mary Magdalene tell her story if there was men in the audience listening. It is madness. It is unbiblical. You simply cannot support it. And I hope, thinking about this and looking at these scriptures, and I know this morning and next week they're more of a teach than a preach. And I sort of texted Aaron in advance, and I'm like, I don't know what songs you're going to sing after this. I don't know that anybody's written songs about this. But I hope this stirs you, man, that you need to support and create space and encourage and champion women in ministry. You fathers of daughters, that you encourage your girls to serve God with all their might and not to sit back in a, in a secondary role. That you young men, that you boys get a correct view of women, a correct Bible, and you take your lead from Jesus and from Paul and not from those muppets on the internet or even in some churches. This is so important, so, so important. The church has got to be different in cult- than culture and the church has got to show culture how it should be done. Let's pray and then let's worship this resurrected Lord that Mary saw.